Yes, it is. And welcome back. I've been looking forward to this hour all day long from the moment I got out of bed. Truly couldn't wait to see these fine gentlemen. Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe, is an attorney in town and an educator. And his son, Louis Hallman, is the managing partner at Inside Analytics. We had Louis Pasteur, who discovered some important things. We also have Louis Hallman, who's discovered some really important things, more important, uh, actually, for our uh, presence than uh, what Louis Pasteur did. We'll get to that in just a moment. Where do we want to start, gentlemen? Well, I, I think the traditional answer is with our stock and trade, which would be COVID-19 data. So, I apologize if this puts regular listeners to sleep at this point, but this is important stuff, and so we're going to kind of keep beating this drum a little bit. Good. Can I start with the easy stuff because then you're going to take off on the hard stuff? All right. You take the low-hanging fruit. The low-hanging fruit just is where are we today? It's like being with the Smothers Brothers. It's really great. I love it. Um, the low-hanging fruit are, uh, Arizona Republic, please get out your headlines because we're still at about 6% empty beds, not counting the surge beds, notwithstanding all of the blood-red ink about uh, surges around the world and around the country and here. And, in fact, uh, we're at about uh, sort of a moderate range uh, from the prior spikes, the the January of uh, 2021 and the June-July of 2020. Uh, we have... Only 37% of the hospital beds of regular beds with COVID patients in it and 57% with not COVID patients in it. So we still have a huge percentage of our beds that are filled by people who don't have COVID. And uh, the same is almost identically true for the ICU beds, not counting any surge capacity. So the continuing drumbeat about overwhelming our hospitals, even with this surge, and of course it's all the fault of people who are not vaccinated. We'll get into that in a little bit. The point is that uh, notwithstanding the efforts to ram us into corrals to be afraid, very afraid, the numbers are pretty well just what they generally have been. And uh, again, the question is asked, why is it that when hospitals operate at 6% capacity when there aren't COVID patients in the beds, people are not overwhelmed and exhausted? They're only overwhelmed and exhausted when the patients have COVID. Interestingly as well, and we'll get into this after Lewis does his numbers. That's a great point. The way Just in which... Push over that. Yeah. That's a great point. Say it again. Then. Yeah, say it again. That, that that is that we have capacity uh, that is empty beds about 6% and it has run over the last year between 9 and 6% empty so 6% to 9% empty beds meaning that somebody's been in a bed up to 92 or 93% of the time 94% of the time and yet the only time we hear about exhausted hospital workers exhausted healthcare workers are when those patients have covid not when those patients have had heart attacks or have pulmonary disease, causal things, other other yeah. problems, yeah. car accidents, whatever it might be, and so it is amazing to me that the the exhaustion of our healthcare workers only occurs when patients have COVID, because the number of people in the hospital have run about the same for the last year or so, plus minus a few, and so it's plus or minus six uh, percent empty beds to nine percent empty beds, and maybe it's that marginal three percent, except we've had fewer empty beds when we've not had a COVID surge than we do now. So the whole logic is just befuddling to me. But Lewis has then gone on to do some extraordinarily, extraordinary uh, uh, careful analysis of the data. And so I'm turning it over to Lou. So uh, I want to I want to preface this just a moment. This this is unique analysis and a better journalism would have discovered this a while ago. 
Uh, pay close attention to what you're about to hear. I don't think you'll hear it anywhere else. Well, the, the other thing I'd like to say before I dive into it too deeply is that this is a variation on the same theme that we have been talking about on this show since three months after the pandemic started, where we first noticed these, these sorts of trends and manipulations in the data. Manipulations in the data. But here's the, here's the issue, effectively. Whenever the Arizona Department of Health Services um, releases a new slate of COVID cases or deaths, take last week's issuance. Last Tuesday, they said that 213 new deaths were reported. Now, the issue that, that frequent listeners will know is that they didn't all happen that day, right? It's 213 death certificates were collected having occurred on various days from the beginning of the pandemic up until now, typically between three months and two weeks back are when most of them get lumped in. And the longer the pandemic goes on, the, the more likely it is that those death certificates are further back, further and further back. Right. And so... The issue then is that when you've got an aggregator such as the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, it takes all of the state sort of individual data sets and it aggregates them up. The trouble is that it doesn't use the actual curve that shows the daily distribution of cases. It takes those marginal sort of daily roundup totals and presents them as if that is the actual data. So if you go to the CDC's website and you download the number of, of deaths that occurred in Arizona on the 11th of January this year, the CDC will say it's 213. AZDHS, if you look at the individual day, will say it was 17 deaths. That is a big difference, particularly in a world where we have multiple variants starting up in multiple times. So, for instance, uh, the Omicron variant, the much, much maligned Omicron variant, Started up. It could have been G, but we didn't like to name it. <laughs> don't don't lose your thought, but yeah. just so you know how much manipulation is going on. That's an here. example. It's not the worst of them, but just I mean the whole idea that we had to name it something else, even though it was the right thing to name it because based on the Greek alphabet, that's what it would have been named. But just to you know save face against the Chinese premier, we gave it Omicron. I mean. To think that this isn't being manipulated, that's really just worth pointing out. Go ahead, Lewis. So uh, um, now, since Omicron sort of took the media and the world by storm, uh, our world in data has uh, it making up about half of all COVID cases in the U.S. as of December 21st and about as of December 28th of this year. So somewhere around Christmas is about the time it really took dominance. So if you just look at the data going back to Christmas from, from December 25th, 2021 to now, the, uh, the CDC reports that Arizona has seen six, 267,000 cases of COVID and had one, uh, 1,643 deaths. Now, that's a case fatality rate of 0.43%. Twice flu. Twice flu. I'm sorry, it's 0.62%. Excuse me, thrice flu. Um, if you look at AZDHS's data... They have 278,000 cases, a little more, and 678 deaths, or about two-thirds fewer. That gives you a case fatality rate of 0.24%, hmm. which is right in spitting distance of flu. Now, if don't you, spit because you'd get COVID. Yeah, exactly. If you go back from December 1st, looking forwards, the CDC reports 405,000 cases in Arizona and 3,600 deaths. AZDHS reports 357,000 cases, about 50,000 fewer, 
and 2,257 deaths, about a third fewer. That gives you a case fatality rate of 0.63% as opposed to the 0.9% the CDC reports. And so you can see just by misunderstanding how the data is collected and perpetuating that error, we are shooting ourselves in the foot when it comes to actually understanding the scope and scale of the problem that all of the corporate press is permanently braying about. So when you have the New York Times and looking at the CDC data, not the AD. And proclaiming themselves the guardians of science while they do so. Then you see that they have inflated, in the one example, the mortality rate by 50%, in another example, by 100%. Right. And so this is this comes to a phenomenon that, that I like to think about when I, whenever I read the media. Um, the corporate press is very often factual but not truthful right. in that the data they provide is accurate but its context is misleading and misapplied. There are two quotes that this kind of reminds me of. The first is from Wordsworth, the poet. And it goes something like, a truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. Mm. The second is Cardinal Richelieu from France. And that quote goes something along the lines of, if you give me six lines written by the most honest man, I will find something in them to hang him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the issue is that, is that Truth very often is not enough in the face of sheer institutional ignorance. We can get the right numbers. AD, AZDHS publishes an updated list of them every day. But unless that full-time series is integrated with our analysis, unless we're actually looking at the data we collect, we're spinning our heads in circles. We're not getting anywhere. And worse to that point about bad intent, when the intent is to spin the story against your target – you can actually manipulate the numbers very easily. And in fact, we've seen that during Donald Trump's reign of terror. Uh, it was the bad states of Texas and Florida, the, the red states that would not shut down and look at the terrible numbers. And then the press would not report the same kind of data and information about New York or New Jersey or Maryland or other D states. And we're seeing that again now. Let's pause on that. We'll pick up more on it on the other side of this break. And by the way, Hallmans are always happy to take your calls, too. 602-508-0960. Hugh, Lewis, and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. The Hallmans are uh, my guest, and uh, 602-508-0960 is the number. Uh, just let me, um, let me fill in just a little bit. Uh, Hugh Hallman and I, and Lewis, obviously, you, you should be part of this as well. We keep threatening to teach a course on media bias, and maybe someday we will. But ha often this is how it works. You were talking about, um, about reporters and the distinction between fact and, and truth and what they print. Often the way it will work, and keep in mind, most of these reporters are are pretty young these days, and they 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 know basically one world view, or at least they 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 have been raised to be much more skeptical, shall we say, about other world views that aren't their own. They may interview six or seven experts, sure, and those experts may not all be on the same page, and they can say they did their research. But then what they write is the, from the point of view of the experts that they like. That's often how it will happen and dismiss the three who said something else. Well, I'll actually right. go further than that because I've been the subject of yeah, that sure kind of have. reporting, and that is uh, as an elected official. They cherry-pick the quotes sure. 
So if you're trying to explain in a context the issue that you're facing, even the experts who disagree with the premise that the author is trying to make will say things that are conveniently used to support their premise. It's the stuff when they're talking in contrast or trying to provide background or give them an entire uh, universe in which this uh, context has to be taken. And that happens a lot. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that that is the typical pattern. And I think, Seth, you've identified it, that you've got now such bias that there is no longer reporting. There is opinions disguised as uh, news stories. I think there's another issue, if I may. There was a trend I noticed kind of in my own, in my own head as I would read uh, media pieces, particularly you know, um, more before COVID. I've been getting better at this now. But, you know, I I, of course, know less than 1% of all human knowledge. I'm staggeringly ignorant on most subjects. But whenever reporting happened that touched an area that I, that I consider myself expert in, you know, I can very quickly notice all of the ways in which it is riddled with holes. And I'll, I'll, I'll just say, oh, you know, this is terrible. This is terrible. This is wrong. This is wrong. But then when I'm confronted with the other 100-odd articles in the newspaper – because I don't have the kind of background knowledge, you know, I'm, I'm often prepared and willing or was more willing, I should say, to give the journalist the benefit of the doubt in those cases. Oh, they must know what they're talking about, else it wouldn't be published. And if I only were willing to apply that same level of consistency, that if I'm looking at this, this article and it's filled with shoddy work and inconsistency, then why isn't the whole rest of the paper this way? Mm -hmm. It Honestly, it starts to read like you get a bunch of really bad C-minus level students trying to like make a book report on a subject they didn't read. And, and, and that's what most of this stuff is starting to look like to me. Malo and uno, malo and omnibus is what we used to be taught in law schools in the rules of evidence. Wrong and one, wrong and all, right? What he said. So the example from last week was Kazakhstan. <laughs> I, am, I would hold myself out as somebody who knows more than probably most people in the United States about Kazakhstan and its context. And there would be certainly some professors who have degrees because they've studied certain things. I'm pretty sure, as I've gone through m many of the papers in the last uh, week or two, looking at the analyses being spit out by universities to explain by their expert what's going on, that those people have perhaps studied it from afar or, as Lewis would say about uh, econometric work, maybe taken a class. Uh, but in this instance, I've been there for 29 years. And it is that expertise that as I'm going through the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times and every other source of news story, the bias was palpable because they, there was one story that got put out and then it was just repeated in the echo chamber. And ladies and gentlemen, if we're willing to understand that about the areas in which we have expertise and passion and knowledge, we really ought to apply it to the entire boat. That's Lewis's point, that, that if it's biased in the business section of the Los Angeles Times, as it was last week, with the news story, or rather the column, that we ought to be dancing on the graves of uh, people who have not been vaccinated, uh, that truly was the original uh, uh, caption for that uh, story, that why would we think that the business section of the L.A. Times is any better with respect to any of its reporting? Uh, yeah, I, exactly. Think about the ethic of the institution that hires that in-house report writer. Think right. about the institutional ethics of an organization that would hire someone who celebrates the death of those he disagrees with. Well, let me give you an example. So factual versus truthful. CNBC just published last night. This is the same organization that was crowing a year ago about those terrible states of 
Florida and Texas, those red states run by red governors who had overwhelming numbers of cases and deaths. And now that we're talking about uh, cases and deaths with uh, the Omicron variant, quote, New York is still reporting a high level of daily infections, ranking 15th out of all states, according to the CNBC analysis, adjusted case counts down from the second most just to a few days ago. They didn't report about New York being the second worst state in the country for cases a week ago. They waited until they could talk about the fact that New York's caseload is improving. They did exactly the same thing with New Jersey and exactly the same thing with Washington, D.C. If you dig it out, Washington, D.C. had the highest number of COVID infections per capita in the entire United States. That story didn't get done. But now they're talking about the fact that it's past the peak and it's it's getting much, much better. Interestingly as well, these are the people who did not want to tell us that people who were in hospitals were going to hospitals from automobile accidents and heart attacks and being tested positive. But now that it's on Joe Biden's watch, uh, vaccines, uh, let me find the right, about half of the city's hospitals, hospitalizations, this is New York, about half of the city's hospitalizations are from people who've been diagnosed after they were admitted for something else, according to New York governor. And that sounds right. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, said 40 percent nationally about two weeks ago. And it goes on. Forty two percent of the New York hospitalized covid patients were admitted for something other than the virus. So these are the points that suddenly under under uh, Joe Biden's watch, we can now talk about the fact that a huge proportion of people in the hospital who are tagged as covid patients are there for another reason. They are in the hospital with COVID, not from COVID. And that's a huge and important distinction, just as it's been important, we beat this drum, that people who have died with COVID aren't people who died from COVID. They died because they had a heart attack. They died because they were sufficiently obese and had other problems. And even Rochelle... uh, Rochelle Walensky. Rochelle Walensky finally admitted that last week. On that point, real quick before the break and before uh, we pick it up on the other side, on that point, real quickly, if if you assimilate all of that... We must have an infection fatality rate that is much more close to the flu than anyone has ever said. So let's get some easy numbers. Just back of the napkin as an example. In the state of Arizona, if you disaggregate the data and just look at the last six months of the number of deaths over the number of cases, taking their numbers as true, that the cases are reported, we won't touch that, that the deaths are reported, we won't touch that, it's 1%. So that's dropped in half. Then when we come back, we'll talk about the ways in which that's just still absolutely false. And it's because Lewis did the assessment and data searches uh, a year ago that help us understand that. Good. I'm Seth Liebson. They're Hugh and Lewis Hallman. We are at 602-5080-960, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I was going to make fun of Bill for something. I don't remember what it was. Do you remember what it was you said earlier that I was going to have some sport with you? Oh, yes. It was actually on me. We'll do it later. We'll do it later. Rob is in surprise. Rob, hi. You're on with the Hallmans. Oh, good. I'm glad, Seth. Uh, great show, by the way. Thank Always you. great to hear from the Hallmans again. Um, I, uh, and again, and again. <laughs> and again. No, it's, it's great. Um First of all, I I have to make a public service announcement. I had my uh, colonoscopy done yesterday, and uh, I have a family history of it, and I encourage everybody. I'm almost 68 now. uh, I encourage everybody over 50, especially males, 
to get one to take a look because there's uh, my father died of uh, colon cancer back in 93. So obviously I have a family history of that. Um, and I was able to actually get scheduled without having any problems with, uh, you know, getting into a hospital. or Those were put off for care. some time. Yeah, there was a backlog for a while. Yeah. It is off-putting. Yeah. In fact, Rob, I appreciate right. the, your main point because I'll cut to the chase on that one. My father uh, uh, ultimately succumbed to colon cancer as well. I just turned 60, so I'll be assuming the position with you. But you got a question on so- shots. Yes, I, I did. And, and one thing that, um, and again, I agree with all, all the stuff you guys are talking about, and, and Seth knows this. I, I just worry, like, for the last at least year and a half, maybe two years, the only thing that's been discussed is a vaccine. They've left, uh, there's been no encouragement nor any uh, uh, recommendation from the powers of the be. Uh, which shouldn't even be powers that be. Um, but they, they never talk about the other options beside a vaccine. You know, the, the ivermectins, the hydroxychloroquines, the zinc, the vitamins. Yeah, why, why, uh, why is it only one thing? Lewis has probably the best read on this. There's sort of two rather pithy answers that I could give. The first is that no one ever got elected to Washington by promising that they would do nothing. And so there is a bias towards grand strategic action that may be very, very wasteful. And then the second is that once you have a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail, right? So as soon as this has become the main issue and it's crowded out all of the other forms of discussion, we kind of get a feedback loop where this is all anyone is willing to talk about. And once everything has become marvelously politicized, we have the corporate press treating you like a, a heretic or a witch if you think that, that the dominant narrative is not the most appropriate way to behave. I l- like that, 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 that if you're unvaccinated, you're a witch. Well, there's we another throw you into the pond to see if you float. Yeah, but there is another point to this, too, isn't there? Um, that it's and I don't have a great phrase for it. Maybe you guys do. But it's awfully hard for a lot of people to climb down from a perch they said was the only answer and 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 the and 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 that they did so with absolute certainty as new information arrives it's awfully hard to climb down from those perches especially when there's an undercurrent of concession to those who were dissenting all along it's What's very the, hard for people to do that it's wrong that they don't but it is hard that they for them right when when the president of the united states tells the world that if you get a shot right you no longer have to wear a mask. You're not going to go to the hospital, and you're not going to die. Should we play it real quick? Please do. I yeah. think because people won't believe that that's actually the problem we're facing here. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. The various shots that people are getting now cover that. They're, they're, you're okay. You're not going to. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Yeah. So he didn't say that as a candidate. He said that six months into his presidency. Right. During as a Just candidate. a year and a half into the pandemic. His, okay. his vice president said the opposite, that she would never trust a vaccine that was created under Donald Trump. But the point is, now we've got this problem that you've got the president of the United States in this box, that vaccines are the end all and be all to success. And then you have breakthrough cases that the CDC starts reporting on and then rips down that information from its own website so that we can't actually analyze the likelihood of a breakthrough case if you've been fully vaccinated, whether it's with Delta or Omicron. Now we are getting more and more information that's being freely reported, even in the corporate press that wants to support Joe Biden, about the fact that the the. 
various shots are not sufficient, including boosters. Let me give you an example. Again, back to the CNBC story. Here's what they just reported last night. Quote, while vaccines, particularly without a booster shot, appear to offer less protection against infection from Omicron, they do seem to be holding up against severe disease and death. Now, let me stop there. Okay. In fact, that's truth. That would have been fact and true. But then they added, for which they were originally designed to prevent. Of course, that's completely false. The president of the United States insisted that if you got a shot under his watch, you would not get sick, you would not be hospitalized, and you would not die. And now they're slowly but surely trying to get off that perch with this kind of reporting. Uh, that's an incredible thing, that, 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 that comma, which they were originally meant to. We have the CDC white papers. They were not incredible. Right. We have the president. We have the CDC. It's uh, memory holing in real time. I'm Seth. They're the Hallmans. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Apropos of nothing except that uh, life is for the living, I, uh, I watched a documentary last night. I can't believe it took me so long. Everyone I've told about it that I thought would be interested said, oh, yes, it was wonderful. I saw it when it came out. So it's been out for a few years. It's, maybe it's just being promoted on Amazon Prime. But it's called Mr. Warmth, a documentary on Don Rickles. I cannot convey enough how beautiful, funny, emotional, and instructive this video is. It's, it, it, it will remind you of a better part of America, truly, and over Don Rickles. Believe it or not, Don Rickles, I, I really want to urge you, uh, everyone in the audience, uh, to watch it. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but you would love it. You will just love it. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> and and get your test to make sure you don't have uh, colon cancer. Yeah, and make yes, exactly. All right. I want to add Our one more thing business very quickly. frowns upon this levity. Go ahead. Uh, yes, the um, the now now you've got the media trying to figure out how it should report case rates when the fact is that they now are acknowledging that people are testing at home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they're not reporting when they're testing positive. And what they have not yet figured out is, in fact, they're making the argument for the, the real result, that the fatality rate is much lower than even what Lewis has now just been reporting. That's right. That as the fatality rate has been falling precipitously and is getting closer to the flu, I'm going to ask Lewis to sort of recap how we've thought about that. But just let me give you one example. Again, here is the CNBC. To be sure, cases are rising in the majority of states with 23 reporting record high infection levels as of Sunday. And even so, U.S. cases are undercounted due yep. to the availability of at-home test kits for which results are not typically reported to the state or federal agencies, period, unquote. So that means that we have a lower fatality rate, even than Lewis is going to describe, and we have always made that point since the beginning because of a thing called asymptomatic cases. But before Lou, Lewis does that, let me, let me just underscore that because of this, this just occurred to me. I was thinking about this very thing on the way in. When we have looked at CDC data or world or meters or whoever you go, Johns Hopkins numbers on, on, on caseload, coronavirus caseload, those are based on the tests. That's right, that your doctor gives you in his office or, or her that you office went to a, a or one of these testing yeah. facilities. Yeah. But all these Binex or other companies that you take home 
home from Walgreens or CVS or wherever you get them or used to be able to get them, those are not reported. And we all know people who have tested positive with those. Those are not reported. That means there are more cases and fewer fatalities based on that case rate, which is and exactly Lewis the will point. add the asymptomatics, right, Lou. Right. So, so the asymptomatic part of this has existed since the start of the pandemic. Very early on in uh, May or June of 2020, the sort of softball consensus was something on the order of between half and 80 percent of cases were not being counted because the the person with them had didn't have enough symptoms to warrant getting tested. We also at that time, you may recall, had a severe shortage of testing. So all of those early numbers have a much, much higher case fatality ratio than is probably accurate. Now, the second piece of this is, is just it's evolutionary game theory. It's that the longer a virus is in existence and percolating throughout the population, it will select for two things, increased transmissibility, so the, the most transmissible variants continue on and reproduce, and also reduced mortality, i.e., if you kill your host, you can't pass yourself on and reproduce. So that over time, we've seen each variant more transmissible, less deadly, more transmissible, less deadly. Hence the notion of survival of the fittest. It doesn't mean the strongest. Kids often think that survival of the fittest means the football player who was the strongest can kill everyone. It means the thing that fits the environment best to pass on its genes. Which, which can often mean revenge of the nerds. Exactly right. Yes. So, so that's that's sort of the first piece of this. Is says, the, says Lewis Holman. Exactly. Yeah, just, yeah, check out the picture, folks. <laughs> so, so not only do we have uh, asymptomatic cases confounding the, pish, the, the picture, we also have the way that we count COVID deaths confounding the picture. And so cases entirely. The issue is, imagine if you had gotten COVID in... April of last year, April of 2020, if you died now, no one in their right mind would argue that that is a COVID death. So there's some demarcation, right, right. between there is a when point, you get right. COVID right. and when you die, right. where enough time has passed that we're pretty sure it's no longer a COVID case. Well, the rest of the world, particularly Western Europe, uses a 28-day standard. If now. four weeks have passed now, they didn't before August of 2020, but since August of 2020, they've used a 28-day standard. So that if you have COVID and you die 30 weeks, I'm sorry, 30 days later, it's not a COVID death in in Spain or in the UK. However, Whatever else you might have died of. Right. In in the US, however, we still use a 60-day standard. And so while in the UK or Spain that wouldn't have counted as a death from COVID, here it does. The issue with that then is that we are radically increasing our, our number of deaths relative to other countries, which makes us, of course, then look bad in international news comparisons, which is precisely the way the corporate press likes it. Um, but aside from that, now they always blame America first. We I was groping for that line. That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. Were you there for that speech? I was. Yeah. 1984, Gene Kirkpatrick. Brilliant. But next, Texas. Oxford did a study. Uh, no, it wasn't Oxford. It was Cambridge in the UK did a study of this of this issue. What happens if you move from a 28-day standard to a 60-day standard? You half your death rate. The case fatality is halving the death rate again. That would mean you could take our whatever, whatever number is presented at face value. If you were going to account for a 28-day standard and asymptomatic cases, you could just about cut your case fatality rate by 75%. That means if you look at the data I just provided from Christmas onwards, looking at the time that Omicron has been prevalent, 
we've seen 278,000 cases and 678 deaths. That is a case fatality rate of 0.24%. Taking the flu, their data on the face. The flu is 0.1 to 0.2%. So that's barely above the flu rate. Now we adjust for those two confounding factors, case fatality and asymptomatic cases. Well, that puts us in the neighborhood of 0.06% half flu. What are we doing at this point, people? Listening to great music as a bumper. That's what I'm doing. It's the right response. Yep. If only. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. We uh, we truly mean that. We take nothing uh, for granted here, including your goodwill to allow us into your cars, homes, hearts, and heads. Lou Hallman, Lewis Hallman, take us out. So I, I really love and, and I try to think in terms of individual solutions to problems because they're what allows us to bootstrap up solutions to really hard things. They're applicable everywhere. Even if the system is structurally against you, the best thing you can do in any and all circumstances is to play the hand that you've been dealt optimally. But the people that hate talk about personal responsibility, the people to whom that is most abhorrent – are those ideological nitwits looking for soldiers in a war that will then create system-level solutions, forbid you from considering issues and from acting in your own interest, and trust in daddy government to solve your problems for you? And I'm struck by the fact that this is remarkably similar to how we've handled COVID. We are not allowed to be moral agents. We're not allowed to be decision makers. We're not allowed to assess risk. We have to hope that the science and the scientists assess risk for us and assess the problems of educating our children correctly and assess the problem of feeding us correctly. And it it comes to a point where I am increasingly disturbed and, and, and really looking for someone to fill that hole. So desperately, are there any leaders out there can we get anyone to talk about how we can fix ourselves rather than have someone else fix us? It's a really great point. You know, you almost want politicians who get the question, what is your plan for X, to say, what is your plan for X? Right. My yeah. plan is to get out of the way and yeah. let you succeed. Yeah. One of the clear indicators of this pandemic is that the three greatest challenges for people who might be infected with SARS-CoV-2 are, did they drink too much? Did they smoke too much? Did they eat too much? All three of those things are within their power to control. And yet the government doesn't want to talk about the things we can control for ourselves and improve our lives that ultimately would redound to the huge benefit of this society so we could cut our health care costs. No, they want to figure out how we can spend even more money on health care for our benefit.